All right, we'll go ahead and pray and, and we'll get started this morning. Lord, we just thank you that uh, we can gather here today as your people and just enjoy the word that you've given. Lord, I pray that it would cause in our hearts uh, a desire to know you and to serve you and to be impressed by you, Lord, and that out of those things it wouldn't just sit there and, and rot, but instead, Lord, it would cause uh, growth in our lives in our actions, and our treatment of one another, and our treatment of lost, and, and our uh, worship of you, Lord. That this would even be seen uh, coming to fruition uh, this morning as we turn later to your word to be fed through the preaching of your word, and we turn to uh, the singing of songs and praying to you for, for our uh, care and, and our well-being. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. It's good to be back. It's nice to be here. Um, we're in Job. It's been about a month or, or longer since we were there. Um, and we're going to start in Job 17. Kind of where we, we left off. And we're going to go forward to Job 30. So obviously that's a lot. Um, we spent some time going a little slower as Job is a, is a poetic book, it's a, a book of, of prose, it's a book of uh, different sayings put together to convey a single idea, and a lot of these ideas, or each chapter carries with it one or two, sometimes three central ideas of the chapter, and he finds just different and, and poetic ways to communicate those ideas. So I certainly commend to you the importance of uh, spending time on your own in the Word of God studying it and seeing uh, what it has for you as an individual as well. Um, and I don't think you'll be disappointed if you like poetry, if you like literature. Uh, the author, whoever penned this for us, if it's Job himself or one of his friends who's not here, um, uh, if who it is, we don't know. But the poetry here is just astounding. Uh, but I, this isn't for poetry lessons today. This is for uh, helping you understand some of the thoughts and ideas in each one of these chapters. There's a, uh, well, th that's probably too small for you all to read, or I'm sitting in the way, one of the two. Um, but there is a review of, of the summary of what we're going to be covering this morning. And we're going to go from kind of a reset of what's going on in chapter 17, just as way of reminder. Um, and then we'll work through, and we're going to just see... Uh, uh, back and forth between Job and his friends that are there to comfort him as Job defends his innocence and also challenges God himself in what has taken place to him thus far. Job is a familiar enough story that those of you uh, here are, are probably just looking around the room are familiar with. Job is an individual who has uh, been faced with incredible Tribulation, loss of all of his children, loss of all of his flocks, um, loss of all of his possessions, and then finally uh, his health has gone from him. He's now covered in boils that are painful, and all he can do is sit in ash, not only out of uh, mourning for his situation, but also just out of the comfort of sitting in something soft and not pokey. So, uh, And then his three friends have come to see him, to comfort him in this. 
what none of them see is that this all came about because God mentioned Job to Satan and said, hey, have you seen Job? He's a righteous man. And Satan has said, well, I'll bet I can break him. God says, yeah, have at him, but don't kill him. Basically is what it ended up to. And there's two, two instances where God had Satan look at Job. And Job to this point has not cursed God and he's not uh, uh, held God as being unjust to him. Uh, and up to this point, his friends who for two weeks came and just sat and mourned with him have slowly started to turn against Job because Job has refused to say that his situation is because of his own actions, that he is deserving of the pain and suffering that he has faced. It's interesting that we had some uh, baptisms two weeks ago. And we have some people, certainly in our church, who have seen and experienced the, uh, experienced the uh, health and wealth gospel. That is, that you do good, you do right, you praise God, and good things will happen to you. And we can look at that. I actually watched that American gospel uh, this last week. I had a lot of extra time on my hands. And watching the American gospel last week, I was like, these people are absolutely crazy. Haven't they ever seen life? This isn't how life actually works. Um, but it turns out that's, that's the thoughts and attitudes of Job's friends, and maybe even Job before this occurred. We aren't totally clear. So that's what brings us to chapter 17. And in chapter 17, we're reminded of the humiliation of, of Job. Uh, verses 1 and 2, My spirit is broken, my days are extinguished, the grave is ready for me. Surely mockers are with me, and my eyes gazes on their provocation. So death is what Job has left to look forward to in this life. And, and there, there, you know, I pray that each one of you has a realization that, that death is real, but this is beyond the fact that death is real. This is, things are so bad that that's all that I think is of value. And you'll notice also that the only ones standing around Job now are people who are mocking him, they don't believe him, and they don't trust that he is actually innocent in all this, which, because we have chapter chapters 1 and 2, we actually know that he is. Just a reminder, they don't know that what took place in heaven between God and Satan. In fact, it's gotten so bad that not only are the people around him that are his friends starting to attack him more and more violently with their words, we also see in verses 8 and 9, the upright will be appalled at this and the innocent will stir up himself against the godless. Nevertheless, the righteous will hold to his way and he who has clean hands will go stronger and stronger. So, even the righteous and the innocent, those people that, and, and by that I mean the people that Job would see as being the, the great leaders, the righteous people, the people that you would expect, the religious leaders, those are all the people that have turned on Job now, even though he's innocent. The people that you would expect to come and stand by his side and, and defend him have now turned against him. He's lost any kind of support from anyone. Down in verses 13, that verse 13, then if I, if I look for Sheol as my home, that'd be another word for the grave. If I made my bed in the darkness, if I call to the pit, you are my father and to the worm, my mother and my sister. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. Um, where now is my hope and who regards my hope? Who will go down with me to Sheol? Shall we together go down into the dust? So chapter 17 is just a big reset just to remind us of where Job is at in all this. The end is the grave, and there is nothing left in this life for him to hope to. 
The only thing he has left in this life is the death that is to come. And that's actually where his face is set. He's looking at that. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for, for us to want to look in Scripture and try to find Jesus in everything, but I don't think you have to look too hard to see some of these things. Certainly in Jesus' life, he was surrounded by mockers. He was surrounded by those who tormented him, who accused him, even of being having uh, the, the devil, Satan, was his father and the one who he received his power from. We saw him surrounded by those who would be, should be the righteous ones, the religious leaders, the people that should know better are the ones who are standing up against him, the, the quote-unquote innocent. And yet through all of that, his face was set on the cross. Throughout his ministry, he knew where everything was leading and he knew it was in his hands and he knew that he would give it up. And so we do have that kind of foreshadowing as what, it, what is to come with our own savior, savior, but it even gets a little more pointed as we go forward. Chapter 18 then, Bildad, who's one of the friends of Job, has uh, responds to Job's idea that there's nothing good in this life, there's nothing more I can do. You have to remember that they think that Job caused this, and if Job just changes, if he admits his sin, if he repents and comes to God, then things are going to be better. And so Bildad here uh, defies Job's assessment of himself, and to be honest, Job's assessment of where he was at and what was going on wasn't that far off from reality. There in verse 1, then Bildad the Shuite responded, How long will you hunt for words? Show understanding and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as beasts as stupid in your eyes? Or you who tear yourself in anger, for your sake is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be removed from its place? Again, I, I, I love the poetry here, but basically Bildad here, his response to Job is, you've ignored what we've said. Are we just ignorant beasts? Do you think we're stupid? Are you going to turn your back on everything we know to be true on the earth? Basically, for your sake, the earth is to be, is to be abandoned or the rock to be removed from its place. Are you going to tell us that the natural law of how things work isn't real, Job? Because the natural law is God punishes the wicked and he lifts up the upright. The upright do well. That's their idea of what the natural law is. What Job is proposing here is that in his innocence, he's going to go to death and misery, even though he's a righteous man. It would be as crazy in their minds as him arguing against gravity or arguing against um, the fact that the earth is round. Job here might as well be saying the earth is flat and I know it. There is no gravity because these people have built up their, their idea of who God is as somebody who just grants you what you want and what you need based on your own behavior, based on whether you're a good person or not, is being shattered by Job's experience. To give them a little bit of credit, they don't know the innocence of Job. They haven't been with him and haven't seen him do everything he does or doesn't do. But they're also not good friends in that they don't just shut up and allow Job to suffer and, and assume he's, he's probably being truthful with him. Verse 5 and 6, And indeed the light of the wicked goes out, and the flame of his fire gives no light. The light in his tent is darkened, and his lamp goes out above him. Basically, the, he's going to enter here for this next uh, 15 verses and go through the fact that we all know 
that the light of the wicked, when, when the bad do things, they eventually, their light will go out and their flame will give no light. His tent will be darkened and his lamp gets cut out from him. This is as real as when those of us who have kids, especially once your kids reach those teen years, when they're making life and life-altering decisions for themselves, you can tell them things like, you know what, you keep drinking and this is the outcome of what your life is going to be. Or if you hang out with those types of people, this is the type of life you can expect to have. If you handle your money in an ungodly way, in a self-serving way, you're not giving to the Lord, you're not uh, being conscious with uh, future savings and future needs, you're not being wise with those things, here's what you can expect. And while Job isn't totally disagreeing with that, Job is saying that, I'm sorry, but to be honest, you think that's how it works every time, and we all know it doesn't. We all know that's not how these things work out. So Bildad here is arguing that the end of the wicked and what happens to them is established. Everybody knows how this, the story ends for a wicked person. In fact, it culminates there in verse 20. Those in the west are appalled at his fate, and those in the east are seized with horror. So everyone who dwells on the earth, from east to west, knows what happens. I forgot, I have slides. Sorry. Um, everyone from the east to the west knows what happens when the wicked's life plays out. That they end in, in horror. 21, surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. So Job's response to that, Job certainly, um, uh, the fact that Job is being tormented even though he's innocent is an, uh, is an offense to God, and his friends uh, should also not do him any wrong. So Job's response here is, is one, to God and also to his friends. Verse 4, even if I have truly erred, my error lodges with me. And if indeed you vaunt yourselves against me and prove disgrace to me, know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. You know, it's, it's one thing that they are, they are uh, attacking Job with what Job has done and saying, Job, you're in the wrong here, repent. Job, start doing good works and all this changes around you. But Job knows he can't. He has nothing to repent from. And he also, you know, good deeds are not something he can just run out and do right now. He knows that this is a battle between him and God. That God is the one who has brought this about or allowed for this to happen, if you will. And that that is the one who Job has an issue with right now is God himself. That God is the one who has done this to him, not because of anything on Job's fault, but because something within God's plan has brought this about, and Job just lacks understanding. God is punishing Job for something Job has not done, and, and in, in Job's eyes, and his friends don't get to pile on. They want more than just a physical torment. And again, if you look down there in, in verse 20, this is going to come to a climax here in this, in this passage this group of chapters, he, he says again, my bones cling to my skin and my flesh and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Pity me, pity me, oh you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. 
Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? You know, it isn't, it isn't bad enough that God is the one who has done this to Job or again allowed this to happen to Job. This isn't, it's not bad enough to his friends that Job has now suffered physically, tormented, torment in his body with these boils and everything, that his friends are now even piling on on top of that. You'd think that his friends would see his torment. And even if Job was guilty and deserved what he was going through, Job, does, Job says, you know, why can't you just say, the punishment you received is enough. You can have my comfort as a friend. And I think there's something in there for each one of us when we see, certainly when we see people who we know who have sinned, who are reaping the reward of that sin, we have a tendency to want to be able to come and say, see, this is what happens when you sin and this is a bad thing. You know, sometimes their, their lives are bad enough. They don't need us to jump on and point out to them how bad their life is. And that's what his friends have done. They've, they weren't satisfied just to see the torment that Job's under. Even if he had sinned, they, are, they, are, they want to continue to push it and push it and push it and make Job admit falsely that he sinned. But it's clearly the hand of God that's upon him. And, 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 and Job knows that because Job knows his innocence here in this case. Basically, all that's left of him in his life is his skin and flesh clinging to his bones. He's completely wasted away and exhausted and tired and in pain and has no friends. But we see the hope that he has. We mentioned that Job's hope was in the world coming to an end. Job is actually innocent of his friend's accusation accusations and he knows that in this life we don't always see the results of our sin just as we don't always see the results of a good and holy life so job's hope in his death isn't a final hope job has a hope beyond death verse 23 oh that my words were written oh that they were inscribed in a book that an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever just a reminder to us, by the way, all the words you've spoken and everything you've ever done is, in, is engraved with a stylus on a rock forever. It's all there. Each one of you, everything you've done is there. Job here in his innocence is actually able to claim, open it up and see what I've said. Open it up and see what I've done. He's actually calling for that. I, I don't know that I would want that. <laughs> um, I don't this is, a, this is a bold statement. And you know, when, when you go back to it, this is the man that, that God said, hey, have you seen Job? Um, I don't know that God could do that with me. One of you can teach next week. Job, Job cries out for his, for that, that the book would be open. And why does he want that? Because as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Job knows that he will be restored. Job will be restored, redeemed, vindicated. He knows that when the book is opened, when the, the thoughts of his heart are revealed, for no one knows the thoughts of a man but God. 
that he will be able to stand. And that his Redeemer, God himself, will be the one to say that he stands. Verse 26, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. You know, the theology that's wrapped up in these three verses, 25 through 27, is absolutely mind-boggling. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. When is our flesh destroyed? This is a, this, feel free to say, death. So he's saying, after I die, yet from my flesh I will see God. How does he have flesh after he dies? Yeah, there must be some form of resurrection here that Job is counting on, is relying on. That not only is resurrection, we're not just these physical bodies that are separate from our spiritual bodies, and we die, the, the physical is done away with, and, and all that's left is the spiritual. Job here is, is saying that, no, my hope isn't just that, that I someday am vindicated, but I'm someday vindicated and my body is restored to me in such a sense that I will have actual eyes to see God. Can you see God? What are the problems with seeing God? What is God? The Spirit. Okay. Well, that makes it more difficult. Um, and what, what happens to any man that sees God? He dies. So Job is speaking something here. This, the, the fact that this is sitting in the middle of Job is just amazing to me. It's, very, it's actually very exciting to me. Um, the fact that here he is, and I shall behold, or I'm sorry, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God, whom I myself shall behold. As an individual, I will see God. I will be in such a state that to actually see God and see whatever the visual representation of God is, that that's going to take place in my future, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart fades within me. This is the thing that keeps him going is that he knows that in the end he's going to be judged right after this life. And he knows that when the book is open, everything he has done and everything he has said will be made clear, will be revealed, and he will stand in the presence of his Redeemer. He will be once again clothed in flesh. He will once again have eyes to see. And he will be able to stand in the presence of God. So not only here do we have the resurrection of our bodies, but we have bodies that can be actually stand in the presence of God without being destroyed for the sin that's in them. We were in Romans 6 yesterday with our D group, and, and we paused on this idea of our mortal bodies being at wage against us, trying to cause us to do what we do not want to do, that we want to serve God, but we live in these mortal bodies that that's why none of us can ever live without sin. One of the reasons. And yet here we have uh, the joy that happens when those mortal bodies are taken away and we're given a body that can actually stand in the presence and see God. There's far too much here for me to comprehend and understand. Don't, don't get me wrong. I don't think this is simple at all. But just the picture that Job has and what his hope truly is, is 
is really astounding. Verses 28 and 29, if you say, how shall we persecute him and what pretext for a case against him can we find? Then be afraid of the swords for yourself, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there is judgment. Job is telling his friends here, there's two sides to this death and punishment that comes after death based on on looking at who you are and what you've done. Everything I've done will be shown to be just in this situation. You guys face the same thing. You're trying to find some pretext to attack me. You're trying to say that I've done something wrong. You should be afraid of the sword yourself. You need to be afraid of death. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword. So why do you face wrath? Well, when you do bad things. When wrath comes, it will come with death. They come together. So you may know there is judgment. Job here is making clear to them that my righteousness will be judged after my death. My rightness in this will be judged after my death. What you are doing now will be judged after death. That's when the ultimate judgment comes. For both the, the, the righteous and the unrighteous. Anyone hear the, the Johnny Cash song, When the Man Comes Around? Okay, if you don't, you need to listen to that song. It's really good. It, it, it chops up scripture into tiny, tiny little bits and sprinkles it throughout the song's lyrics. So be careful that you don't gain your theology from Johnny Cash. But when the man comes around, the, everyone, that, whether you're, the, the righteous will be judged as righteous, sinners will be judged as sinners. There's not going to be, those of you who do not have God should be very, very afraid. Those of you who do not have a case to, to bring, Job, in this situation, I keep making it clear, in this situation, Job is innocent. We ourselves need someone who can stand innocently for us, and certainly we have Christ, who, by the way, has a a mortal body, this glorious body that we have, and we certainly need him to stand on our behalf. That isn't in this text, but we know it from, from elsewhere. Those of you who don't have that, who don't have a way to stand right before a holy God, you're in trouble. Punishment will come. So there's more to the existence of this life. God will judge the just and the unjust and reward accordingly. The resurrection is a physical resurrection. God does not abandon creation for a spiritual eternity only. We saw that when we studied Genesis, that all creation is groaning and looking forward to being redeemed. If your eschatology includes some sort of lack of a physical salvation of the world, then I would challenge you that your eschatology needs to find its way back into Genesis. It needs to find its way into Job and make sense of this, that there's a physical part of this as well, that God doesn't just say, well, I lost that one to Satan. I guess guess I'll try and just win the spiritual world instead. How stupid is that? God is the God of the living and the dead. Life continues on a line. It's not cyclical. Your life is not a Lion King movie where um, it's a circle of life and when you're dead, the people come afterwards and get to live and enjoy, you know, your somehow carry on and it just keeps going around and around and our ancestors live in the, in the sky somewhere looking down on us. Actually, that's more of a country song. But it's Lion King as well. 
Our life is, is, a, is on a timeline. You had a time you began and you will die and then you will face judgment. Nothing circles back around. Chapter 20, Zophar, another one of the friends, is offended by Job's condemnation. If you think I'm stretching what Job says about them in 28 and 29, um, Zophar makes it clear that he understood Therefore, my, my disquieting thoughts make me respond, even though, even because of my inward agitation, I listen to the reproof which insults me, and the spirit of my understanding makes me answer. He's like, I'm not going to be quiet. You just basically said that I'm going to be judged, and God is going to cut me off, um, and that you're somehow the right one in all this, Job. Do you know this from of old, from the establishment of man on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless momentary? Saying, wait, no, no, no. We all know that when you're godless, when you're wicked, bad things happen. That's been from the beginning of time, Job, which isn't true. If you go back and read Genesis, that's not how it ended up working out. Um, But he says, look, we know this and understand this. And then uh, basically verse uh, 6 all the way down to about 26 are, are examples of what happens to the wicked. And then verse 26, complete darkness is held in reserve for his treasurers and unfanned, unfanned, unfanned fire will devour him. It will consume the survivor in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart. His possessions will flow away in the day of his anger, the day of God's anger, the day of judgment. This is the wicked man's portion from God, even the heritage decreed to him by God. Job's not disagreeing with that, and I wouldn't disagree with that statement other than to say, add where he goes wrong is he's implying in this life. Certainly the consequences for the wicked are that all these bad things happen. The danger is to believe that as a wicked person, all these things happen in your life. If you are living a life of sin and you have a sin that you enjoy that is nobody's business but yours and you know what? I'm not hurting anything and nothing bad has happened to me because of it. Do not assume it's because God does not judge the wickedness. Do not assume that God's grace goes on forever. Do not assume that you will die and because you weren't punished now, you're not punished later. That's the assumption that's being made here, that that's how God works, that he works out all of the good and the bad in this life. In fact, if there's ever evidence that there is a life after this one, it's the fact that, well, and if there is a God, the fact that evil people do end up dying in luxury. There has to be some way to make that just. So judgment will come at death. Absolutely. Verse 21, or chapter 21 then. um, Job makes that point here. He says sometimes the wicked don't suffer for their actions in this life. They don't. And you and I know that. Verse verse 6, there are cases when the wicked die without being judged. Um, even when I remember, in, I am disturbed and horror takes hold of my flesh. Why do the wicked still live? Continue on, also become very powerful. Their descendants are established with them in their sight. 
Their offspring before their eyes, their houses are safe from fear, and the rod of God is not on them. His ox mates without fail, his cow calves and doesn't abort. They send forth their little ones like the flock, and their children skip about. They sing to the tremble in the harp and rejoice at the sound of the flute. These people seem to live really good lives up to the point where they die. Continues that, that thought, that idea again, the, the poetry there continues giving you that idea that Job's saying, you and I both know we don't always see it work out this way. Verse 27, behold, I know your thoughts and the plans which you would wrong me, talking to his friends. For you say, where is the house of the nobleman and where is the tent of the dwelling places of the wicked? They're going back to, in verse 28, I think what's happening here is they're going back to uh, uh, basically a proverb about the, the nobleman, the righteous man, and where they live, and the tent and the dwelling place of the wicked and where they live. And Job makes a, I love this statement, have you not asked wayfaring men, and do you not recognize their witness? So I picture wayfaring men here being basically migrant workers, laborers. You go, you go hang out with Garrett with a bunch of guys who, who work hourly, or, or Luke, and, and they'll tell you, if you walk in there and you say, you know what? The really good people in life are the ones that have the money. And the really evil people in life live in squalor. And they'll tell you, there's you no. Know, you go to the other extreme, you go, I'll just pick on the whole family. You go to Philip, you go to any banker and tell them that, and they'll laugh at you too. They're like, no, that's not how this works. I don't notice that, oh, you've got money. You must be a really nice person who does really good things. Job's saying, you people are crazy. And he, he, he calls out the, on the, the wayfarer here to come and, okay, migrant worker, you tell these guys that think they're so smart and think they have a finger on how this world works, if that's how it works. And they're like, no, not even close. It's not what we see. So they judge people based on where they live and their status but even, the, even the, the lowliest of the workers know that doesn't tell you what kind of people they are. Verse 30, for the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity. They will, they will be led forth at the day of fury. This is the day when they die. Who will confront him in his actions and who will repay him for what he has done? While he is carried to the grave, men will keep watch over his tomb. This is the beauty of... You know, they're being carried to this wonderful field and the clods of the valley will gently cover him. Moreover, all men will follow him after him with countless ones go before him. This is the way it's been. Countless men before him who are evil have gone to the grave. Countless men after him will go to the grave. But as Job says, it's a day of calamity that's reserved for them. It's the day of fury that's reserved for them. It doesn't look like it during their funeral procession, during their burial, but that's what's coming. So he says, basically, how then will you vainly comfort me? So for your answers remain full of falsehoods. You guys can't even, the logic that you're using, the truths you're using wouldn't stand up in, down at the, at the square. Nobody believes what you believe. Everyone has seen that what you're telling me is not actually how the world works. And again, Eliphaz now, also, also fairly offended by Job here, responds. You jump down to verse 5. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? He's saying, 
basically, Job, no, you're wrong. You have to be wrong. There must be something in you that is terrible, that this terrible thing would happen to you because terrible things only happen if if you're terrible. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? For you, Job, have taken pledge of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. To the weary, you have given no water to drink, and from the hungry you have withheld bread. But the earth belongs to the mighty man, and the honorable man dwells in it. You have sent widows widows away empty, and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. Therefore snares surround you, and sudden dread terrifies you, or darkness so you cannot see, and an abundance of water covers you. These are his friends, and and now we get to the the root of it. His friends truly believe that Job is a wicked person. They cannot comprehend how this terrible thing has befallen Job unless Job is a wicked person. Job knew this, and he felt this in their thoughts and in their conversations and kept pushing until they admitted that that's where they stood and that's where they're at. If you jump down to then verse 27, this is again Eliphaz speaking, you will pray to him and he will hear you and he will, you will pay your vows. You will also decree a thing and it will be established for you and light will shine on your ways. When you're cast down, you will speak with confidence and the humble person he will save. He will deliver one who is not innocent and he will deliver through the cleanness of your hands. So what's the solution for Job here? The solution for Job here is that Look, if you just admit you've done wrong and you go to God and you lift up your face to him and you cry out to him, all of these bad things will be restored. You want to get right with God, Job? Start doing good works, repent, and everything gets better. Everything gets restored to you. Repent and all the health, wealth, and prosperity will be given back to you. Because you know what? The other thing they're implying there is how did Job get all of his health, wealth, and prosperity? By, by doing good things, right? Now, is that false? Did God not bless Job? Before all this happened to him, did he not give him children? Did he not open up the wombs of his cattle? Did he not allow for him to have all of this wealth? Absolutely, it's true. In fact, it was kind of related to his position with God, that God had blessed Job. Satan wasn't wrong when he said, you put a hedge around him so no one can touch him. So there is some truth to that. But the ultimate judgment and the ultimate reward is not found in this life. Again, they're still focused on this life. It has to all take place in this life. Job understands that's not the case. And he longs for restoration, but he longs for restoration by God. Job replied, even today my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to a seat. Now understand, he's talking about the almighty God. He's talking about entering into the worship chamber of God that he has a case to bring. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer. I'd actually know why this is going on, which is fair, and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge, my judge who is God himself. Job would be able to plead his case, and God would find in his favor. He knows that to be true. 
but he completely leaves off in a similar fashion to his friends the idea that God has a totally different perspective. God has a totally different purpose for, for our lives, for his life, for what he's accomplishing than what Job actually understands and can see himself. And it's, it's interesting to, as we walk through this book, as if you just watch the ideas of Job start to be changed and, and refined by, the, the, the first of all, the pain of loss and now the pain of his friends attacking him in his, in his innocence. Job is starting to get it. He knows that he would be able, to, that God would be a good, righteous judge and would judge him rightly. Verse 10, but he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He knows that God will show that he is not deserving of the punishment he's receiving on this life. And then verse 13, but he is unique and who can turn him? Who can turn God? What his soul's desires, he does. For he performs what is appointed for me and many such decrees are with him. Therefore, I would be dismayed at his presence. When I consider, I am terrified of him. Is it God who has made my heart faint and the Almighty who has dismayed? It is God who has made my heart faint and the Almighty who has dismayed me. But I am not silenced from the dark, by the darkness nor the gloom which covers me. He has this understanding that, okay, wait a second. I realize I just said I'm going to walk into the presence of God and defend my case against him and have him be my holy judge. But I also understand that why he does things and how he does things and what the point of it, I don't get. And that terrifies me. There's a, there's a fear of the Lord there that's beyond just the fear of, of if I sin, God punishes me. If not in this life, then certainly after death. There's a fear there that God does all these things and he's the arbitrator of what is right and wrong and what I will and will not receive in this life. He does it for his own purposes. Chapter 24, Job then sees so much that God seems to ignore. And we certainly live in a world, and we in the same world that Job did. Times are different and people are different. We wear different clothes for sure. Um, and we apparently eat less lamb. They apparently ate a lot of lamb. But times are different. But otherwise, it's still the same God. Verse, verse 1 there, Why are times not stored up by the Almighty? And why, does, why do those who know him not see his days? Some remove the landmarks and seize and devour flocks. They drive away the donkeys of the orphans. They take the widow ox for a pledge. They push the needy aside from the road. The poor of the land are made to hide themselves altogether. Behold, as wild donkeys in the wilderness, they go forth seeking food in their activity as bread for their children in the desert. Down to verse 12. From the city men groan and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not pay attention to folly. So in Job's perspective, there's all these things that the wicked do to the people around them, to the poor and the oppressed and the needy, and yet nothing seems to happen to them. God does not appear to pay attention to any of the folly. Twenty-two through twenty-four, then that 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 thought kind of continues and he drags off the valiant by his power, he rises, but no one has assurance of life. 
He provides them with security and they are supported and his eyes are on their ways. Somehow God is actually seems to be supporting these people. They're exalted a little while and then they are gone. Moreover, they are brought low and like everything gathered up. Even like the heads of grain, they are cut off. Now, if it is not so, who can prove me a liar and make my speech worthless? Not only do the wicked seem to prosper, they seem to prosper in light of of hurting other people and taking advantage of other people until they're dead. Tell me this isn't true, guys. Talking to his friends. They're all eventually cut off to God, but there doesn't seem to be any reason for it. Bildad now is is in chapter 25 then. Um, I think he's frustrated here with, with Job in the sense that Job doesn't seem to be listening to them, that he isn't willing to listen to their health and wealth and prosperity plan for Job's life. Um, and he's, he's going to fall back to, none of us can know how any of this works, so just, just do what we tell you, Job. Dominion and awe belong to him who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops, and upon whom does his light not rise? How then can man be just with God? How can he be clean who is born of a woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and that son of man, that worm? None of us does good. None of us is perfect, Job. Okay? So, yeah, there are bad people who seem to get by in life, but you have to understand, it's because all of us have a little bit of bad in us. Job doesn't let Bildad speak for very long. This is a nice little short chapter. Job rebukes Bildad for his simplicity uh, almost immediately. It isn't that what he said isn't, doesn't have some truth to it. Job responds, What a help you are to the weak. How... You have saved the arm without strength. What counsel you have given to the one without wisdom. What helpful insight you have abundantly provided. To whom have you uttered words and whose spirit has expressed through you? So basically, oh, thanks a lot. So you're going to tell me that your chapter, chapter 25, those six verses, that that's, that's some great pearl of wisdom? That all of us are, none of us are perfect, which by the way should remind you that Job himself is here admitting that he himself is not perfect. Verses five and six then, the departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon is no covering. So God does judge, and God judges the dead. In fact, That is where true judgment ultimately lies. You know, better for you to lose your life now that you might gain it in all eternity than to gain life now and lose it for all eternity. That comes from the idea that in this life you can actually have great gain and still lose your life in the future, or vice versa. Then verse 7 there. He stretches out the north over the empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in in clouds and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. We're picturing in our minds the meteorological things that 
um, we've all seen take place. And while we have some scientific explanation for some of it, we still certainly don't understand all of why it happens, when it happens, and how it ever came to be, and what's the role behind it. He's inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness, by the way, which says our earth is round. It has to be in order for that to take place. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his breath, the heavens are cleared, and his hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways, and how faint a word we hear of him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? Even in our scientific Western minds, we have some answers for things. I'll tell you right now, as, as the, the circumference, if you draw a circle of it, here's our understanding. As your understanding of things increases, that line around that circle grows. So your circumference of ignorance grows at more than three times. Is that right, Elise? Pi? What's pi? Okay, so the circumference of the circle is related to its diameter. Okay, or its radius. So as your understanding grows, you just got more and more ignorant. That's the, that's the wisdom and understanding of God. And that's what he's saying here. You can, you can see even the fringes of his ways. We see these things like eclipses, like storm clouds that drop, somehow don't drop rain. Um, these amazing th th things that occur in our universe are just the fringes of his ways. Yet his word is so faint. In contrast with his thunder, that at this point they wouldn't have fully understood. I don't think what thunder is. Um, we can't even understand the loudest of things, much less his quiet voice. And we have kind of a full circle here where Job is in 27 is going to defend his innocence, knowing about the coming judgment. I hold fast to my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. Basically, up to verse 6 there, he's saying, I am going to do what's right. I'm not going to bend a knee and do evil. I know I'm not going to say I've somehow sinned to cause this, which to me would be unjust and untrue. What is the hope, verse 8, what is the hope of the godless when he is cut off, when he dies, when God requires his life? Down to 13, this is the portion of a wicked man from God and the inheritance which tyrants receive from the Almighty. Though his sons are many, they are destined for the sword and his descendants will not be satisfied with bread. His survivors will be buried because of the plague and their widows will not be able to weep. Job here is stating that when the godless die, they may die in wealth, but eventually the sins of the fathers are visited upon the descendants. Eventually God does act even in this life and in this world. And it's, a, it's an interesting view of humanity that while people can sin and somehow escape to the grave without having to bear the punishment for that sin directly in this life, it is not just ignored by God. It is eventually paid for. God does not totally ignore sin in this world. Even if you're not judged by this life, you will be judged and then sometimes some of that judgment will fall on those that come after you. Either family who continue in your ways or those around you in your business who continue in your ways. God eventually does act. Because only God has wisdom there in, 
in chapter 28. Surely there's a, this is a, this is again another beautiful picture as we, as we finish up here. Chapter 28 is all about mining earth's treasures. Mining iron and copper there in verse 2 and, um, looking down further into the earth to try and bring these things up, gold, um, all of these things. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of mining. Um, but verse 12, you can spend all your time trying to dig and find all these things, but where in the world can you find wisdom? And where is the place of understanding? Wisdom can't be searched for and obtained like gold or jewels. It's not like if you just work far hard enough for it, you're going to get it and you're going to somehow possess it. It's not like that. Um, verse 23 there, God understands its way. God understands wisdom and he knows its place. For he looks at the ends of the earth. This is why God has wisdom and we don't. And we'll, we'll end here. God understands its place and he knows his, or understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. Can any of you do that? No, obviously not. Should we pursue wisdom then? Well, we're told to, but we'll get to what that actually looks, what pursuing wisdom looks like. He looks to the ends of the earth, he sees everything. When he imparted weight to the wind and metered out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. Not only does God see and know all these things, but he's the one who's decided even how heavy winds will be, how much water is going to fall when it rains in weight. He not only decides where the thunderbolt's going to fly, but he's the one who produced the thunderbolt. He's the one who decided that it was going to fly. He knows that is wisdom. That is the wisdom that we dig for and try to find, we can never actually attain the wisdom of God, even if we worked and spent our whole life doing it. So what is our lot in life? And what is the point then in this life? If, if good things can happen to bad people and bad things can happen to good people, then, and if we're to handle that in a wise way, not knowing everything God knows, not understanding everything God understands, what is, what is the secret then? Verse 28, and he to man, and to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So you don't have to have a full understanding of the course of events or what caused them or what brought them about, which he explains in 23 to 27. You don't have to have those understanding. And in your own life, you don't under, have to have an understanding of why the winds came and knocked down the house where all your children and their spouses and families were and killed them all instantly. That's not for you to know. What, if you want wisdom and you want insight and you want understanding, fear God. Understand that he knows those things and he understands those things and he acts according to a knowledge that we can never have. And depart, to depart from evil is understanding. Two parts of this, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and fools despise, or it's the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. They're in Proverbs, but here's kind of a restating of the same thing. Fear the Lord, that is wisdom. If you want to claim to be wise, then fear the Lord. If you want to understand how things work, then depart from evil. Job here is defending to his friends that he actually does get it. It's not that I'm 
ignoring my sin and my guilt. I actually understand my sin and my guilt. And by standing against you guys, I'm actually fleeing evil. We're going to cover 29 and 30, but um, there's not time. But that's okay, because 29 and 30, we'll, we'll get into what we covered back with My Redeemer Lives, and that'll be a good place to pick up. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that uh, you have set a limit not only on the seas and how far they can go, you've put a circle around the sky to separate the heavens from the earth as we look out. Lord, you've also put a limit on what we can know and what we can understand. I pray that you would make us a people who are wise to realize that. When we see good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people, Lord, that we would be humbled by it and understand our ways are way below your ways and our understanding is way below your understanding. And just know that wherever I fit in that spectrum, Lord, that, that my life is in your hands. The good I have is from you. The bad I have is from you, Lord. And that we would turn and just bless your name. That that would never cause us either to see those around us who we think are treated unfairly in one direction or the other to cause us to curse God or question you, but instead, Lord, that it would cause us to accept what happens to others. And accepting, Lord, that we would accept that these people are in the hands of God and they need our support more than they need our judgment. God has that part taken care of. And for our own lives, Lord, I pray that we would Seek to do what is good out of fear for the Lord as well as, Lord, that we would have the understanding to avoid evil and sin in our own lives. Ultimately, Lord, I pray that we would recognize that our Redeemer lives. Thank you for the clear picture that we are given of that through His resurrection. That because He is resurrected, He's the first fruits of a people to follow after Him and that we can be that, that we can someday stand in the presence of God with eyes to see God and have our flesh not be burned off our bodies. Lord, we look forward to that day and, and we know that even some of the bad things we have in our lives happen to us that we might look forward to that day more if we'd understand what really matters. It's in your Son's name we pray these things. Amen.